Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast, I really thank you and appreciate it, and I also appreciate it if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I also want to let you know that Rise of Future is available pretty much wherever you want to get books in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and everywhere else, at least on Amazon. Today we are at Salt Lake City at Fanex, which is short for Fan Experience. And what an experience it is. 120,000 avid fans, cosplayers, book enthusiasts, and my personal favorite, book authors. I met today's guest, Brandon Mull, at the Life, the Universe, and Everything conference in Provo earlier this year. And I got to really like him and his lovely wife, Erlen, before I ever read any of his books. Now listen to this bio, and you'll find I had him at the word bubble wrap. So Brandon Mull is the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Fable Haven, Beyonders, and Five Kingdoms series. A kinetic thinker, Brandon enjoys bouncy balls, squeezable stress toys, and popping bubble wrap, one of my favorite activities. I love that. He lives in Utah in a happy little valley near the mouth of a canyon with his four children and a dog named Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He loves meeting his readers, and I just saw him. He was just on a two-hour book signing at the, uh, at the bookstore right across from me, and it was just, it's very obvious that he loves his fans. So uh, welcome, Brandon. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you. So when I met you originally, you were the keynote speaker at the Life, Universe, and Everything. And we ended up just inadvertently sitting at the table and, and Emily said, do you know who that is? And I said, no. So that's Brandon Mull. He's like, he's like the new hot guy for Scholastic. And he's like, like he's the dude. So. Oh, that was, that was kind. <laughs> you, you, you know, it's really fun that, that I've created enough traction in my career to get to do what I love, which is writing crazy stories. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's my favorite thing. So with, um, so after we met then, you sent me a copy of Fable Haven, the book, first book of it, which I read. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. I, I mean, I read so many books and so many kinds of books, sure. but I really like YA. It's, just, it's easy for me just to enjoy. I don't have to worry about any special, you know, like themes and stuff like that. Although we are going to talk about one thing that does ring loud and clear in your, in your book, which is family. Yeah. You know? sure. But... So what was the inspiration? I mean, Fable Haven, you've got Kendra, who's this, I think she's what, 13? Yep. She's 13. She's a smart one. And then... Her brother Seth, Seth is Seth, 11. He's 11. And he's like a little brat and a half. And just, you know, it's like not dissimilar to like Harry Potter or every other like little kid YA troublemaker. You know, it's just don't go there. And of course, where they go is there. Don't open that box. They open the box. You know, Seth is totally that. Yeah. But Kendra is, um, she's unlike any of the other, at least for me, I, maybe I don't read that much why, but I read enough that I was really impressed with her. And, you know, so your family values really ring out in that whole thing. So, I mean, the, the premise of the story, they're going on a vacation or the parents want a, a vacation and they're going to go off and they have to to farm off their kids who stay with their grandparents. Yes. And the mom was reluctant, I think, or something. But anyway, they're going to do it. And I guess the mom knows what they're in for and is trying to prevent it. But boy. The grandparents are the caretakers 
of a secret wildlife preserve for magical creatures. And it's all sort of hidden at first, right? Sure. And so the there's a lot to discover and even some danger staying with grandma and grandpa that it goes way beyond the ordinary. Right. And I just, I found it was so pleasurable. It's like, sometimes when I get ready for a podcast, I'll just, I'll read the book and I just, I don't find books I don't like, but some of them I'm able to read faster and like skim through more to get to the end point. Sure. That's just human. Yeah. Yeah. But on this one here, I was like, okay, so now what's happened with Kendra and some of the parts I, just, I had to make sure I got each one of these points there with, with Kendra so that I could, cause she's, she's really special. So is she anybody in your experience or your life or is that? Yeah. So here's the thing with Kendra and Seth. I wanted a brother and sister that were having to learn opposite lessons. Kendra is your responsible kid. She's your rule keeper. She's the one you'd want to babysit, right? right. Or that you would hire to babysit. Right. Whereas Seth is inherently recklessly curious. He's a rule breaker and he will follow his curiosity to his death if yeah. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't deliberately do that, but yeah, but That's theoretically that the kind of kid, right? My brother Bryson was a lot like the character Seth. I, I have a little bit of reckless curiosity in me. My brother Bryson had a double portion. And so <laughs> through, my, through my younger brother, I knew that such kids existed, <laughs> you know, that yeah. they were plausible and real. And, and then Kendra would be maybe an amalgam of some of the girls in my life that were a little more responsible, including my sister. And she's not, none of my characters are exactly like someone I know, but definitely there was some inspiration from my own sister and my own brother yeah. on some of those characters. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just wondering, cause it's like family. So it would seem like your own personal experience with family, either what you wanted to have in a family or what you experienced and wanted to share with others that didn't have it. Yeah. Um, I was, I was one of five kids. I was the oldest of five kids. We did live in Connecticut. We did have a house that was surrounded by trees. So some of the things with the environment, I was exaggerating my own experience. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. I, I made Fablehaven a lot grander than my house was, but, but I did live in a town much like the kids in the book. Um, I find that when I'm writing a setting, if I can, it's so useful to draw from a setting that I know intimately. Sure. Because then I can just create better details and stuff, right? So I set it in Connecticut for that reason. I also partly set it in Connecticut because when I was a young person living in Connecticut, I would daydream. What if there was monsters and creatures out in the woods around my house that would eat my little brothers and sisters? <laughs> and, and, and Fablehaven was a way to kind of make those fantasies or daydreams come true. Did you want them eaten? You know, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was the oldest brother. And so did I really want them eaten? No. Did I sometimes seem like I wanted them eaten? Yes. yes. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's sort of, that's the kind of kid I wanted to make in Seth where, you know, he's complex enough that he's recklessly curious, but he does have a good heart. He's, he's not, definitely he, got a heart. He's not trying to hurt anybody. He's not, but he does. <laughs> and yeah. so, and so that's, to me, it's more interesting when he does have a heart. And, 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 and as that series goes on, he's, he grows and he's conflicted and he sees that sometimes that reckless curiosity is a problem. To me, it was kind of fun to have, Kendra learning to be more reckless sometimes, or maybe there's occasions when you might need to break a rule. Well, she agrees with him at sometimes to do something that she initially didn't want to. Right. But, but from time to time she sees, oh yeah, I see there might be value in a certain kind of emergency where you might break a certain type of rule. Whereas Seth is learning the opposite. The guy, most of the time rules are there for a reason. 
And if you break them, you might not land it, and or you might even hurt yourself or somebody else. Right. And having them learn opposite lessons just made it a little more interesting to me. You know, you, you can kind of approach all sides when they're learning the opposite lesson, kind of, you know. Yeah, which is way cool in that. I started the, the candy cane Candy shop work. Candy, candy shop, shop work. work. Yeah. I started that. I'm definitely not a children's book reader. Um, that's okay. That's okay. That's Everyone's got their forte. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, but it was, I can totally see how you appeal to that audience because that is, it's not written for somebody my age. And Candy Shop War has the youngest feel of all of my novels. Yeah, it's, it definitely was that. You're in a Candy Shop War, we're in a normal neighborhood with normal kids, you know, like normal suburbia. Yeah. And magicians come to town with magical candy. Right. So it, it's the kind of premise with a lot of kid appeal. And we get, and in Candy Shop where we kind of explore, again, kind of conflicting, a conflicting idea of don't take candy from strangers. And sometimes strangers have the best candy. <laughs> and those two things together are a little more complicated and interesting than any of them are alone. Right alone, right? yeah. And so, and so, yeah, we've got these kids that they're, they're, they really want this magical candy from these magicians, but it comes with strings attached, and they've got to fulfill tasks or assignments for these magicians to get more candy, and it leads to interesting problems, and it's the kind of problems that it's the adventure I wish I had when I was in fifth grade. You know, it was, yeah. I took my fifth grade year to create this book. In fifth grade, I did move to a town in Northern California, like the main character in the story, and then I added magicians and magical candy and... You know, it, for me, Candy Shop Boy is my Goonies. Okay, good. A, a, yeah. a pack of kids having a really weird adventure, you know, with, with cramming it full of all the crazy that I would maybe would have wished would have happened when I was 11 or something, you know? No, that's, you know, so that's, that makes sense. And I wanted to cover that too because the people listening to this stuff, they're not necessarily 11 year old aspiring writers, but their parents who've got 11 year olds and, yeah, yeah. Wanting them to discover a new author that they can really appreciate. The thing I also like too, which is a problem, this is something with Rise of the Future that we definitely deal with, is stuff that's age appropriate, but something that's also, I mean, I don't have, we don't have like, like preaching, but it's okay to have a good story that sure. is also ha is a moral story. Not trying to, it's not preaching moral, but right. just something that has, this the correct sense of, of rightness and wrongness. Here's how I describe it. Be because I realize I'm writing, my, my primary audience is 10 to 14 right. on most of my stuff. And, and and much like Harry Potter, that'll trickle up to all sorts of adults. And, sure. You know, a lot of moms will pick up Fable Haven and find they have a great time with it. And old know? podcast producers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> a, a lot of people, I, I, when I do a signing, if you, I don't know if you noticed. I saw, online, I was watching over there. I'll get the whole variety. They'll be yeah. old and young and teens and, Sometimes it's because they read it when they were young, but sometimes they find it when they're adults and they like it too. Yeah. Um, but because, because my core is 10 to 14, I feel a responsibility to put some light into the stories. I, I, I want the net result of how much light is in that story to leave them a little better than it found them. And so that means that's something that's my own artistic judgment and my own, my own sense of compass or whatever. Mm. But yeah, I, I want the story to, to bring some light, even if it has... You know, to have light, I think you have to have darkness. Yeah. It's the contrast. I mean, he messes up. The There's things that he does like, oh, no, you can see it coming and it comes. But then somehow or another, it's even though you're like I said, it's, there's no preaching at all in the book. It's just it's the whole setting, the whole storyline from what I could see is just a cut above 
you know, that it's not, she's not a goody two shoes, you know? No. Um, and he's not just a brat because like you said, he's, he's also got a sense of a moral come. He's, he's curious. He really wants to see. And he's very curious. So curious, he can't help himself. Right. And there are those kind of kids that, yeah. that could maybe blow up the world because they were so curious they couldn't well, help he themselves. He got himself in serious trouble yeah. you know, with his curiosity. You know, Grandpa says, everybody don't do danger. this, and he does it and yeah. opens the window, and then boom, you know, just things change a lot. And, um, and then what's... Um, and st stories need problems. So you got Muriel. Oh, Muriel. You want to go into Muriel? Yeah, 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 sure. Muriel, she's the chief villain of the story. Yes. In her history, though, she wasn't always like that. No. Muriel is a witch. And sometimes people wonder when, when you talk to an author, hey, where do you get all your crazy ideas? Where does this come from? Yeah. And Muriel the witch has an origin story. So my sister was reading in a book, some textbook, that the word for witch in Arabic can be translated to one who blows on knots. Or at least a word for witch in Arabic can be translated to one who blows on wow. knots. This is a fun fact that I only know because it came secondhand through my sister, who just was struck by it and mentioned it to me. And I was like, one who blows on knots associated with witchcraft. That's just weird and creepy in all sorts of good ways. How can I tell kids about this, right? And so that was the spark that started some daydreaming where I was like, okay, well, what if I had a witch who was imprisoned by a knotted rope, who couldn't get free unless she got every knot untied. But no matter how she bit and tore at those knots, they just wouldn't come loose unless there was maybe a special magical trick to how she could free herself. Yeah, I won't say too much, right? Yeah. But um, it's so funny how just a, a simple detail, like one who blows on knots, can then become the little grain that around which we form a pearl, right? right. Build, build, design a character and create an important moment for a story. And so it was fun to create Muriel the Witch and bring her to life. I actually also, I'm always drawing from my own life. When I was younger, I served a mission, a church mission right. to Chile. And when I served my church mission to Chile, one time I knocked into the home of a witch, a, a brujo, a male witch, yeah. right? He called himself espiritualista, a uh, spiritualist, right? right? Spiritualist. And, and this guy pulled a contraption. Like he saw we were missionaries. He was intrigued by us. And, and, and he kind of had a, a sparkle in his eye as he talked to us. <laughs> and, he, and he goes and pulls out this contraption, like a weird contraption made of wires and coat hangers and stuff. He's like, put your finger in here. Yeah. And I was like, hey, man, I've seen Dune. <laughs> I'm not putting my finger in any contraptions given to me by a witch. <laughs> you know? He's like, no, he's like, no it's, it's a test or something. And I was like, I'm good. <laughs> and I didn't. But like... And he, and he promised he was going to send some spirits to bother me and stuff. It didn't work. But what, but what was interesting was, was that was part of the reason I gave her a contraption that she was trying to trick Seth with. She had a little contraption. Yeah. That, was, that was straight from my real life, believe it or not. Wow. That, that, I, that I, ran, I ran into a, a witch in Chile with a contraption and was like, this is stranger than fiction. Someday maybe I'll use this. And, and someday I did, you know. Well, that's a great story there. Isn't that quirky? But she, but she started off not dissimilar to uh, Seth on just being yes curious and just getting sucked into that whole thing with uh, the dark arts or the dark side of the magic, which is also part of Fablehaven because it's magic in Toto. It's not just good. It's just it's magic. It's light and dark and all yeah. sorts of stuff. Yeah, everything in between. One of my premises for, for Fablehaven, I had a couple premises that were 
kind of fundamental throughout all the books. One is that magic is not for mortals. Mortals are inherently non-magical in my Fablehaven universe, right? And so if, if mortals are gonna use magic, it has to derive somehow from the magical creatures or by making packs or deals with powerful creatures right. or something, right? And so she would have entered into agreements that granted her power and that led her down a road. Another premise in Fablehaven is that my, my demons aren't a specific race. Demons became demons from other places. And, and so she would be sort of like that, like heading into witchcraft, she was kind of heading into the dark powers and maybe the demony powers. And if she culminated her journey, she might have become a demon, right? right. Like, like this. Yeah. So, so there's this journey into darkness that is very possible with Fablehaven. And some of the characters participate in that in some interesting ways as the series this goes guy on. Groke or Brock or the, the bat, one of the main bad guys, the most evil of the guys in the, the, the actual demon who is yeah. imprisoned there. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bahumat, Bahumat. Yeah. 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 So he would be a full fledged demon. Right. But even he, if we could go into his backstory, would have had more innocent origins that would have, his darkness and his power and his evil would have accumulated over time. Yeah. So it's all, cause that's one thing too, is, is I'm definitely a, a believer that at some point everybody's basically good. You yeah, know, they start yeah. off like that and maybe they go down a path that leads to darkness, but sure. It's, it's a, everyone's self got the potential for good. Yeah. Like that, that, that's in there that it has to be squelched. I think that's true too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it can be squelched, but it has to be squelched. Right. Yeah. So you got to, you got to. I mean, I'm a person. Which there's not a whole lot of agreement. I'm a person believer that that pretty much all wounds are self-inflicted. You know, yeah. Ultimately, especially you know. the deep spiritual wounds, yeah. right? They yeah. tend to be, which is which is painful. But if you really think long and hard, you'll find that that's yeah, you had true. to agree to it before something happens. But anyway, yeah, This, this is a the Rise of Future podcast, not a. <laughs> Today's spiritual world. Yeah. We, we, we can delve a little bit into philosophy because, yeah. because we're drawn from philosophy to right. write, you know? Yeah. But yeah, but it's not about philosophy. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, as we were getting set up and starting this, you, you know, this is the Rise of Future podcast. And so when I met you at, at uh, Life Universe and everything, I was there on behalf of Rise of Future. So now your own experience with Rise of Future, can you share that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was a young writer one of the things you're looking for is opportunities to tell a story and share it with someone, right? Yeah. And one of the things I had learned fairly quickly was that having a great idea in my mind and knowing how to communicate that idea effectively with words are two different things, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so it, it, there was, in my early career as a writer, it was, I knew my head was full of stories. You know, there's some writers who like to write because they love to write. I like to write because my head's full of stories. I have stories to tell. Right. I don't necessarily love writing. It's not my favorite thing in the world, but it's but it was a necessary thing if I wanted to share the stories. Right. You story so I was like, I got to learn this craft, right? right? I got if I or these stories will stay locked in my mind. I'll yeah. never get to share them. And and so you're looking for opportunities to share a story. And and I knew that. I, basically, I looked at what I wrote and knew I wasn't good enough to write a novel yet. I I, I would have a really bad novel. I was like, so let's instead write some bad scenes <laughs> and some bad short stories <laughs> as I try to learn what the heck I'm doing, right? right? As I try to practice my craft. And so I was like, I'm not going to have enough. But so what can, if I write a short story, what can I do with it? Well, I can try to publish it in a magazine or look at this contest. And I saw that this contest, I didn't have to pay an entry fee. And the prize money was good and it would get published. And it was like, it seemed like a godsend. It seemed like this, 
this uh, a perfect contest for a young writer because yeah, the future. because you can enter it and and there's not a big price to it. The price is that you spend the time to make a good a good short story right. or something. And so that was so appealing to me that I entered it several times. I finally got an honorable mention once, and 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 that was probably about right because I, I was a young writer and and my skill. I don't think I ever turned in something that should have been a winner or something. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But 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 I was so enthused and it put a lot of wind in my sails when I got an honorable mention once, that um and it gave me practice submitting something and having some feedback and that all led into later on, as I practiced writing scenes and got more confident in building a good scene. I wrote a novel, and my first novel didn't get published, but my second one did. It was called Fablehaven, and, and and so it was some of that. The early practice was trying to write for a for the random fantasy sci-fi magazines I could find that existed yeah. that I could share stuff with, but probably I wrote more for more for the Writers of the Future contest than for any other any other thing when I was a young writer. That's awesome because that's. When Owen Hubbard created the contest in 1983, in fact, one of the people that told me about you was Dave Farland, Dave Wolverton. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he was. Um, he really liked you a lot. He would talk about you as as a writer, but and he gave me some some mentoring earlier yeah. in my career. Yeah, yeah. And but when Owen Hubbard created the contest, because he had a whole history himself of helping, but when he was writing in the 30s and 40s, he wrote a lot of uh, essays for. Um, writers' magazines at the time. Sure, trying how, to train people on how yeah, they can do it. give them tips, because he himself was quite successful at the time. Sure. And um, giving that advice, to like, how do you start a story? How do you come up with story ideas? He, had, he, he talked about what he learned from Jack London, you know, how he would go out, if he had, got stuck, he'd borrow a dollar from somebody and go out to a, the local bar and find somebody just off the off the seas and buy him a drink and just get him talking. And then he'd get some ideas and come back and write his story. And pretty so, genius, right? Yeah. And he just would, you know, that's how he do that. Or, um, one thing also, which is one of the favorite essays that a lot of the winners have talked about is manuscript factory where Hubbard talks about, he went through and he assayed all the different genres he wrote in and how much time it took to write the stories and how much he was paid per, per story, per word. Sure. And, um, and I'm just curious because you write fantasy, you write children's, you write YA. Yeah. You write science fiction and fantasy or just fantasy? You'd probably specific, specifically say, if you want to really narrow it down, I write mostly middle grade fantasy. So you've, you've got YA where the protagonists are teens and you've got middle grade where the protagonists are like middle school age, roughly, right? Like, right, that they can relate to. In those middle grades of life, right? Yeah. And so whereas YA would be more like uh, sexual attraction, middle grades, more like blushing crushes. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's just kind of like in that, that, yeah. that stage of life. Sure. And so, I, yeah, I write middle grade fantasy. It's the same category as like Percy Jackson or Harry Potter. And it's a weirdly successful category. It's a, it, it, it's, it certainly it, is. It's one of those categories, you know, what's, what's the dream? The dream is to reach everybody maybe with a book. It comes about as close as they come to reaching everybody because it reaches a young reader. But if you write it smart, you reach the adults too. I mean, that was proven with Harry Potter, yeah. which is the best-selling series we've got. And and uh, and there's a bunch of very healthy-selling series where it's kind of the, the fat, smart middle grade. You've also got the short, simple middle grade that's more to help an early reader along. Right. 
but Harry Potter's like the fat, smart middle grade. And that's where I live in the fat, smart middle grade. And so my, my younger side is candy shop war, fantasy, fantasy in a neighborhood, normal right, neighborhood. Right. My older side would be my Beyonders series, which is almost not middle grade anymore. It's almost crossing over into a, an older category, mostly as middle grade because that's what I'm known for. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I age the characters just barely into middle grade. But in Beyonders, we're crossing into another world, having pretty heavy adventures with a world where the heroes have all been broken or... Um, They've, they've sold out, they've been bought off, or they've failed. And, and how do you be a hero in a world where there's no heroes left, where the heroes have all been bought Welcome off or broken? Earth. Yeah, well, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Was, you know, it, it's hard to tell that, that story in is Earth. Is it satire or is that? It, it's, it's, not, it's not satire. It's more, like, uh, it's more like I didn't want to write a book where I accused this celebrity is a failure at being a hero, this politician's a failure at being a hero. Instead of that, let's make a fantasy world where all the heroes are broken and sold out. Yeah. And let's, let's have a kid portal into this world, a young man, and see how do you become a hero in a world without heroes? And how do you bring these broken heroes out of retirement? The themes are just a little more adult and a little more heavy than most of right. my series. And that's the one that like my dad friends like. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, so, so if I was really like saying the one you might most like, probably would be Beyonders. You know, okay, I'll read that one. As, as an older, smarter reader. Yeah. You know, like that, that, that's got a little more... It's a really weird start. I describe it as it starts like Narnia and it finishes like Lord of the Rings. Wow. You wouldn't expect Narnia to build into Lord of the Rings. But no, that's, you would more, not. that's more or less what happens in Beyond. I love that final scene, though. So, Yeah. It, 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 anyways, if you're trying to say what genre yeah. I write in, that's my genre. Kind of like the whole spectrum of what we would call middle grade fantasy. From stuff that feels kind of young to stuff that feels more teen. That's sort of the spectrum I'm writing in. And so far... Hey, 20 years, I, I make a good living at it. Yeah. It, it feels like, I've, it feels ever since, it was really hard to get the first things published. But ever since I got the first thing published, which was Fablehaven, it's felt like a charmed road. I've been able to, kind of for me, the writer's dream, I own my home. Yeah. <laughs> I, I pay my bills, I provide for my kids, and I do it writing fantasy fiction. Absolutely. So now, you've got... There's this little bridge there, which a lot of people listening are, are interested in. How you went from like, wrote my stories, then I sold that book. So there are steps that go to writing and, and selling that first book. Was yeah. your first book sold? Was it traditional or was it independent? Or how was your first book sale? My, my first book sold was traditional. Um, so how'd you get that contract to do that as a, from a, going from zero to a hundred there? It's hard to break in, right? Yeah. And... For me, I mean, really, it was that I was just very persistent until an opportunity opened. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so part of it was, you know, here's me as a person. I generally succeed at the stuff I try to do, generally. That's partly because I pick my battles. You know, right. like, I didn't go out for the basketball team in high school because my skills weren't great. And even if I practiced hard, my ceiling was low even though right. I'm kind of tall, but like it's picking my battles, right? Figuring right. out like, where, where can I probably really, really excel beyond the average guy? Where are my real talents, right? right. Um, and so living that way, you know, I, I, I did well in talent shows because I picked the right thing to do, or I did well in the school play because that was a talent of mine and I really could excel against my peers at that, right? But I always felt like my best talent was my imagination. And so it was very frustrating as a young writer 
to be using my best talent and be working as smart and as hard as I could and to have no success. And to even be disappointed with the manuscripts I created, looking at them going, yeah, I mean, this is okay, but it doesn't measure up against my favorite books. It just doesn't, if right. I was being honest, right? And I knew my imagination was better than what was on the page. And so I knew part of that was the most important thing I did was put in the time, give myself the time to mature as a writer and to get better. Right. Because the stuff I was writing at 18 was very imaginative and the imagination side was strong. The story selling telling side was not strong yet, you know? Right. And so I needed some time to really develop the skills. One of my beliefs is that if you get good enough, that, 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 that the prose is really, really compelling, you're going to get published. If it's good enough, there's a certain threshold. Right. You get good enough and you keep doing it, you're going to get published probably. Sure. But, um, but, but the, the painful time is as you're increasing in your skills and figuring out your voice as a writer and, and be able to write something that's, that's, that's powerful enough to get there. And so for me, that was just, I kept the dream alive. I worked, I worked a day job. I was married. I had a kid and I still wrote on the side. I wrote on the side for years until I was 30. And, 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 and the first thing got in front of somebody who actually got excited about it. It took a long time. I heard a lot of nothing. Nothing is much worse than a no. <laughs> you know, you yeah. just send it out. You don't even hear a no. And you're just like, no one even cares. I sent it, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like not even enough to say no. And so like part of it was soldiering through a lot of that until I finally found someone who said, Hey, this thing you sent me, it's interesting. Let's talk. And they didn't even publish the thing I sent them, but at least it opened a conversation with an editor. Right. Which if you get a conversation with an editor who will talk back to you, be excited and listen and be smart. And I, I got this conversation with an editor and he said, like, this thing you wrote, this isn't what we want to do, but what else you got? Cause we kind of like how you sound as a writer. You're finding a pretty good voice. And I said, well, I got an idea about a secret wildlife park for magical creatures. And they said, yeah, that's interesting. We'd, we'd like to see that. So I spent the next five months right, turning yeah. that idea into a novel on, on a maybe, on a hope, right? And when I showed it to them, they got excited. They published it. So my first book was Fablehaven. And, and I found out that when I published my first book, it was a finishing line and a starting line all at the same time. I had finished getting a book published and no one had ever heard of me. <laughs> Or the book, mm -hmm. and it was the starting line of okay. Now I got to try to get this out there and let someone get someone to crack it open and, and read it, and that was the whole next wave of 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 spending a lot of time and effort getting in front of people and giving somebody a reason to open the book, because word of mouth can only start after someone reads it. Correct. So now you yourself, I mean, I saw you here and I saw you interacting with everybody that came, and you had two hours of line with people to to get a book signed from you and you chat with people, did all the photos. So some authors are reluctant to get in, into that. And it, I really, in any opportunity, I'd like to disabuse them of that concept of like, if you put it there, they will come. Maybe it worked for Kevin Costner in a movie 20 years ago called Field of Dreams. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not necessarily- It's a good movie. It's a great movie, but um, in the real world- It's not how it works usually. No. You can write a really good book. And no one can ever hear about it because no one ever has a reason to open it up and take a look. Yeah. And so I would say that any, any writer who wants to commercially succeed, yeah. we're talking about commercial success now, you can creatively succeed just by writing a book and burying it in your backyard and showing it to nobody. You know, like you can still write a good book. But yeah. if you want to commercially succeed, you got you to be a marketer too. Exactly. There's this, I, I say this on my phone, 
the need to help aspiring uh, writers and artists is, is very real, and that's why I'm so keen on Rise of the Future. Yeah. There are upwards of 4 million books published each year, with 75% being self-published, roughly 3 million. The sad fact is that the average self-published author makes $1,000 annually, selling only 250 copies. Self, and this is from self-published books and author sales statistics by Nicholas Rizzo. And that's 2023 statistic. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that's just amazing odds against you succeeding if you're not going to do something to put yourself in front of faces. Yeah. 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 You, you, you got to first write a book that's definitely worth reading. Right. That's the prerequisite. Well, a lot of those three million that don't see the light of day are not worth They might reading. not have done that. Yeah. They might not have developed their skill enough and they're publishing something that's underwhelming. Right. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have to be the greatest book ever written. It's just got to be a book worth reading. The litmus test would be this. If, if you write a book that's, that someone reads and it's good enough that they tell somebody else that they should read it, you will succeed. Yeah. If it's that good, you will succeed. But still, even if it's that good, you got to have that first person who reads it. And that is why I spent a lot of time speaking at libraries, speaking at schools, speaking at bookstores. I mean, the first 10 years of my career... I was probably five months on the road all those years. Now, I was fortunate. I had a traditional publisher behind me. And what that means is I had a marketing team behind me. And so I don't, I'm not some brilliant marketer, but I was willing to do the work. Yeah. I was willing to go out there. Like if, if they were paying for me to go out and visit schools and paying for me, and I just said yes to everything because I knew that as a brand new guy, as a brand new name, if I didn't get my name out there somehow, no one's ever going to crack the book. You know, you, right. you can't. You can't start a wildfire without a spark. And, 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 and really, it's nice if you have a bunch of sparks if you really want to start a good fire. And so I attribute the, the success I've had, which has been significant. Like I've sold millions of copies and I, I make a good living at it. Mm. I attribute it to I wrote books that, that I was passionate about and I felt were worth reading. And then I pushed really hard to help people find them. In a way, it's like this. You don't want someone... If I had my preference, I would have someone throw a birthday party for me, right? But if I want a party, sometimes you got to plan your own birthday party. Yeah. And, and, and it might be more fun if someone else had planned it for me and if someone else had done everything. But I want a party. And so if I, <laughs> if I want a party and I really want it, plan your own party then, man, and, and make it a good party. And so sometimes people come up and say, I love your book. It's so great. And somewhere inside of me, I'm like, yes. Because I spent years begging for people to read it until finally it started. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so don't be afraid to plan your own birthday party with, with writing a book. Don't be afraid to, to get out there. If you think it's worth reading, if you've written something you think is worth reading, don't be afraid to tell people, hey, you should give this a try. I think it's worth reading. You know? And it's a little, it's a little bold to self-promote. You know, it takes a little bit of, little bit of shamelessness or yeah. a little bit of, you know, it's hard. Sometimes we're writers because we're introverts. You know, I, I'm, I'm more introvert than extrovert for sure. I had to develop an extroverted side, though, if I ever wanted uh, to sell a book. Yeah. You know? Now, you've got to be willing to go out there and, and talk to people. I deal with 12 new writers every year and 12 artists, too. Sure. And the whole thing is get them to overcome their, that introversion, that feeling like, no, I just want to become traditional publishing and let them do it for me. I just want to write the book. It's like those days are... are Gone. Even in traditional, all my books have been traditionally published. And even in traditional publishing, I don't know a lot of successes that weren't still heavily involved in their own marketing. 
as far as putting a lot of effort into getting in front of people and being willing to self-promote within whatever boundaries the traditional publisher helped them with, right. and sometimes beyond those boundaries as well. Um, I, I do a lot of stuff for all. There's the publisher who will send me out on book tour and visit schools. And I also privately book school visits and I get paid to do it. The goodness, like if you get good at visiting schools and presenting well, that can be a secondary source of income for a writer. It's a secondary source of income for me. And, but more importantly is the number of ears that hear about my book. Exactly. As I'm out there doing that, like that keeps my career alive. So you just sparked another question here. So how many books do you have right now in Fablehaven? Fablehaven is, is a five book series and it has a sequel series called Dragon Watch, which is, which is basically the second half of Fablehaven. And that's, that's complete as well. That just recently finished. So Fablehaven sort of became a 10 book series when I finished Dragon Watch. Okay, so then as you finish each subsequent volume, did you see a lift in your first? Does it, yes. when you release a book, then does it all pull up a, just a lift in all your earlier books too? Absolutely. I mean, part of the, so part of the strategy, because you've got your creative strategy and you've got your marketing strategy. Right. And part of the marketing strategy of doing a sequel series to Fablehaven was that will revive the sales of Fablehaven. Fablehaven sold much, many more books again after I had Dragon Watch out because I had a reason to be at the top of people's mind or at the front of shelves in bookstores. And so did I only do it for that marketing reason? No, I, I had to creatively no. have a good story to tell yeah. or I might hurt people's opinion of that first solid series. Right. But... Was that a factor in why I did it? Yeah, it was totally a factor. I knew that, hey, if I have a good idea for a Fablehaven sequel series, that benefits not just the sequel series, but I'll, I'll sell more Fablehavens, and there's royalties there too. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, that it was, it was, especially in my category, where there's a new audience coming along every four years. That's it's right. a whole new batch of kids that are 10 to 14. By keeping keep doing things to keep the books on the shelves, yeah, you've got this whole new audience to connect with and sell to and experience the book with you. And uh, it's so far so good. I've got a lot of kids and I got some in college and I got, and, and I got bills to pay and, and so far so good. I've been able to really live a comfortable suburban life while writing fantasy books. And it's partly because I tried to be smart about marketing, you know? Right. So you've got now, I mean, you're in a pretty good position as, as an author, you know, well-respected. How much time a year do you spend on the road at conventions, doing the library gigs, that type of thing? Yeah, I, I've got a pretty strong name. I've got a strong enough name that my agent would say, you don't have to go do all that stuff if you don't want to. I don't agree. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like I, I, I think it still is pretty helpful. And so I, I'm probably on the road two, two and a half months out of the year. And that's, you know, with a busy life and a lot to write and publishers are paying me nice advances and all that stuff. But still, when a publisher pays me in advance, I want them to get a return on that advance. Absolutely. Or those advances will dry up. Yeah. And that's me doing some work to keep my name out there and to keep my brand growing and reaching new readers. Um, that's part of why we're doing this podcast right now. Yeah. You know, I, I want new people to hear about it. And honestly, part of why I want people to hear the whole reason I became a writer was I wanted to share stories. That was why. The stories in my head seemed cool. They seemed yeah. worth sharing. I wanted to share them. And so when, when people read the stories and reach this, that is my purpose. 
My only other side purpose was I don't want to starve while I do it. Right? Sure. And, and so if I if I have if I have food and shelter and clothes and those are covered and 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 people are finding my books and having fun with them, to me I'm living my best life. Like if if you if you handed me a billion dollars, I would keep doing the exact same thing. I, I just want to share stories with people. To me that's fun and worthwhile. Which is great. So I'm just curious, what was your livelihood before you switched over to being really like yeah. a, a lawyer or an accountant or I worked writing marketing stuff and I did not make a lot of money at it. I worked at like an indie film company. I worked at a publisher, but it was a way to learn a different side of the industry. And so I was writing the blurbs on the back of books and I was writing the blurbs on the back of the DVD and I was writing billboards. In some ways it was a nightmare because I was writing the blurbs for other people's books where I wanted to be the guy writing the book. Writing the books, you yeah. know? So yeah. like in some ways it's like a little painful, right? Yeah. But, but it was a good kind of painful because I learned a little bit about the industry and I kind of learned what can I do as an author that would be helpful and what can I do as an author that wouldn't be helpful as I watch people come through, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, and I took that, when I became an author, I tried to take those lessons with me, right? So, but yeah, so I worked writing marketing stuff. I didn't hate that job. It wasn't a painful job. It was kind of fun, you know? Yeah. It just wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. But it was, no, yeah, it wasn't a bad way to go for a guy that wanted to write books. I did that for about 25 to 30 you know, I was doing that. And then when, when Fablehaven took off, that was my first book. I had the fortunate circumstances. I had no golden handcuffs. My marketing job did not pay super well. I was walking away from like a $35,000 a year job. And if that all fell apart, I could go find another 30. You know, <laughs> this wasn't, you know, yeah. I was not a rocket scientist. Right. You know, I, and so... And it so happened that when I walked away from that job to focus on promoting the books, yeah, I made more money every year for the rest of my life. And like, you know, it, that's not for the rest of my life. I didn't keep making more money every year, but I made more money every year for a long time. Right. And, you know, and that was like, okay, I don't need a day job if I'm making more money with this. This is my day job, you know, but it wouldn't have made sense to be doing that if I couldn't pay my bills. For sure. You know, so, so before I could pay my bills, I was a marketing guy who wrote books on the side. Once I made more money at the books than the marketing job, I was a I was a book writer. And you're full time. Sayonara. Yeah, so but I would have gone back to that marketing job if I had to, or gone right. back to some other job if I had to. I I feel blessed and fortunate that I didn't have to. That Absolutely. so far I'm still full time writer. That's which is awesome. How many? I've heard various datums, you know, over the years talking to different authors and some of the ones in the golden age authors throw away your first million words, you know, before you build your your own voice, you know? Yeah, sure. How long did it take you to build your, you feel it took you to build your voice as an author? Less time than a million words. A lot less time yeah. for me. Yeah. But, um, but then you'd also been writing a lot of stuff too, even though it wasn't your voice, it was a feeling of being able to write. Well, and it was, but it did take time. Like I said, I'm not trying to belittle this idea that you yeah. got to develop your voice. For me, it wasn't a million words, but it was more like a lot of effort over a lot of years. It was, it was more time than words. It was like, where am I at now? Where am I at now? Where am I at now? As, as at different ages, I kept trying to write good prose and trying to write good work. And gradually it was getting better and gradually it was getting better. And so time-wise, it took me about 12 years of trying hard to find a voice that was working for me. Right. Right. And so that might not be a million words, but it was, it was a few hundred thousand words probably. And it was a lot of time and a lot right. of thinking and a lot of reading and a lot of, how do I do this? Right absolutely right that i mean when i talk to an agent what they're looking for is have you found your voice 
what is your voice? What's your storytelling voice? That's what they're paying. That's a publisher is paying you for yeah. your storytelling voice. So once you find that, you're in the game. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think people, you need to go through whatever that curve is. So like, maybe you're going to start, I'm, I love Brandon Mole. I want to write just like him. And so you find people will write Brandon Mole stories. Like there was so many, you know, wizarding stories, you know, after Harry Potter came out. And sure. So, you know, everybody. So they love it. And they're, me as a kid, I'm making fan fiction in my head of Narnia because I loved it. You yeah. Know? And you know, so you got, you got to graduate you start. from the fan fiction to actual, your voice coming Originating out. Originating your own. Yeah. yeah. What do I sound like when I tell a story? Yeah. And it's not that you can't. Because you can find similarities to your story to other YA, because it's always YA is it's it's a it's a successful formula that works. Kids are having adventures and there's monsters and like yeah. that, that's going to be in common all over the place. And the kid is going to save the parents or the stuff grandpa. like that. It's just yeah. going to be that type of thing where because they're the heroes and heroines. Yeah, it's not you know there's their chance for them to shine. You know, sure. Like I always did when I was a kid. I had the dream of like I'd be there. You know, depending on what age I was, I was either like the crush or the, I was going to save the pretty girl and she was going to like a little bit older than me, but boy, she was so pretty. And pretty she, girl is one of the fun ones. Yeah, yeah. To daydream about as a kid. Exactly. I, I, I had that going in my head nonstop. It's so funny. Yeah. yeah. But it was, um, you know, with being able to like, when, when I got like with Brandon Sanders, when I interviewed him, sure. he said he'd, he'd submit like six novels and he was ready to throw in the towel. He, he, he got an honorable mention in Writers of the Future. And he said that's what gave him like the, that vote of confidence that, okay, good, maybe I got something going for me. Because he, he, he started off wanting to just do novels, not do short stories, but he did wrote sure. a few. Yeah. But I've seen that enough with other people. Like you need that because you're introverted, because you're like, you're in a room writing. You're not with someone else. Yeah, you're like a hermit. Yeah, so you don't know, and so you're waiting here. Okay, what are they going to say? And you don't hear anything. You're like this seems cool to me. Does it seem cool to anyone else? Yeah, right? yeah. You know, and so between when that's happening, when you finally get that first, like this is awesome, and it's not mom or yeah. wife or husband, then you know you got something. But to get to that point can be very frustrating and can be very um, self-emasculating too. Like, oh, I just I'm not worth it. I can't do it. This is yeah. Did yeah. you go through that at all yourself? And so much, yeah, so much, like so much self doubt, tons of self doubt ab about doing this. I never doubted my imagination. I knew I had a powerful imagination. I knew I had some cool stories to tell. I had a lot of confidence there. I really doubted if I would ever find my voice or if I would learn how to tell them in a way that would really let others appreciate them and really see them how I saw them. Right. And so, yeah, there was a ton of time where. I didn't know if this would work out, you know, like, like, I mean, if you, re if I could go back in time and talk to myself, like, okay, buddy, here's the thing. It's going to work out. Just give us some time. Just don't stress out. It doesn't have to work out in a day. Give us some time. It's going to work out, but it might not work out immediately. It's going to work out. And that would take so much pressure off me because yeah. you're just so worried that am I just deluding myself? Am I heading down this path where I'm going to put all this effort in and, and, and it might not be something that something else will even like, right? That's the scary part. And in some ways, if you're a writer, that's the dragon you have to slay, you know? Yeah. Can, can, can you figure out, yeah, do you, is it worth putting, is it worth that risk? Would you do it even if no one ever likes it? Is it cool enough to you that it's worth doing? And really, like your best chance that someone else will like it is if you are incredibly passionate about it yourself. You just write the thing that you are incredibly passionate about 
write what you most love, what you most most wish existed. That gives you the best chance. That's still not even a guarantee. Right. But again, I think it gives you the best chance. You write something you're really passionate about, and then you hope that someone else will catch the aroma of that passion and go, you know what? This is pretty good. This is pretty cool, you know? That's good. I mean, that's important advice. And because so often, again, the the guy that's trying to make his break, you know, is, yeah, but I'm not like Brandon Mull. I'm not like Brandon Sanderson. You know, they're like, they're like, they're so up there. And people don't realize that when everybody starts, you all have the same starting point. When yeah. You, when you start as, as an author. We're just, we're just nerdy guys who are like, this probably won't work, but I'm going to try. You know, like, like that was it. I, I, I've, I know him pretty well. And we've talked about this and yeah, you don't have any guarantees at the start, but if you love it enough and you push through and, and do the work to get good, who knows? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm proof it's possible. Like I, I tell a lot of people in a lot of ways, I'm just a big dumb guy. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm, I'm just, I'm an everyman in a lot of ways. I've got a really strong story engine for, for imagination. My imagination's uncommonly strong. But for like being a wordsmith, that was something I really had to grind out and learn, and I'm still learning. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. not I'm not the best wordsmith. I'm great with ideas. And so, you know, you take you take your strengths and you look really hard at yourself and you look at what battle you want to fight. It's sort of like uh some kid wants to be a director. You're like, that's a really hard career to succeed in. But for Steven Spielberg, that was a really good choice. Yeah. You know, he got it exactly right. And you're trying to think of that. Like, like as a writer, am I, am I one of those guys that could develop into something? You know, like you don't have to be it yet. You just have to believe that you could develop if you work hard at it. And if you think you could develop if you work hard at it, to me, that's a, that's a, a prize worth chasing, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important, too, that a person, at least, you know, some, like one thing you made a comment about is like, writing something even nobody else is is going to read it like that you yourself is if i'd like this thing you know so like some people just i can't not write or i can't not paint yeah. i can't not create my muse whatever that muse is you know if you were only writing to get money for it your chances go way down i think if you were only writing because you want to please others and you're only writing because you want to see somebody like really applaud your stuff. I'd say that actually reduces your yeah. odds. Yeah. I, I think by far your best chance is if there's just stuff that you're really into and that you really want it to exist so badly. And then the rest will, the rest will come as a result of that. I think more often than, than not. I mean, that, that exudes like just talking to you and listening to you, like your enthusiasm of what you're doing is just, it's, it's so alive and, I mean, that's just so important for an author, for someone just sitting there and just being, you know, just looking askance. It's, that's not what it takes for, at least in today's world. It, that's it not really the, helps if you care a lot and you got something to say and, and, and you're really excited about sharing it. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot of power in that. Yeah. And, and, and so if you look at yourself and think about how, what is it you really want to say? What is it? What is a story that just seems so awesome that it just needs to exist? And if you got some stuff like that in you, yeah, you better get it out there. So, because the world needs stuff like that. Yeah. You know, people will respond to stuff like that. So, you know, you, you, you take your shot. And, you, and, you, and, if, and if the first one doesn't work and you got a bunch in you, then yeah, just keep churning it out till it works. Yeah. Like you said, Sanderson, that guy, he's, he's so successful. 
and he just had no sign of it for a bunch of novels, you know? Yeah. That's a lot of work just to write a novel. That's a little miracle to write a novel. And so the guy wrote a bunch of novels before he found something that caught and worked. And and that's just evidence that, you know, it might not be that first idea. It might It might take a little time. I mean, if I could say anything to the writers that are trying to succeed right now, I'd say one thing is give yourself a little grace. Give yourself a little time to improve, right? You don't have yeah. to you don't have to su- succeed at this tomorrow. You can play the long game. You, you 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 can you can get smarter and you can you can read a lot and write a lot and watch yourself improve and suddenly you'll be a, a much mightier warrior out there on the battlefield, you know, as you're trying Absolutely. to trying to trying to get something noticed, you know? Absolutely. I'm just curious have, have you um have you ever read any of the, of the books from Hubbard at all? Elwin Hubbard? Have you read any of his? I don't know if I actually have read his stuff. I I, I don't think I have. I know of it, like Battlefield yeah. Earth and stuff like that. I, I, I'm I'm a much bigger fantasy geek. I've done a little bit of sci-fi. Like I love Ender's Game and I love Dune and you know I love some yeah. of the classics, but but I haven't done everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wish I had. I probably should. Yeah. Is there is there one you most recommend that yeah, I should try? I, I, what I'll do when we're done is I'll give you. Um, uh, Slaves and Masters of Sleep. It's um, sword and sorcery. It's like Arabian Nights. Oh, so that'll fantasy. give you some fantasy. And that's from yeah. him, huh? Yeah, that's from oh, him. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. John Campbell, who did um, Astounding and Magazine. He was the editor. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said on, on Arabian Nights, I'm reserving it totally for you, Owen Hubbard. He just, no, nobody else don't even, nobody comes close to his Arabian Nights type storytelling. Oh, that's awesome. Else, I'll give you a, a copy of that so you can I, read it. I would love that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. That'd be a, a really fine gift. Yeah. So on, um, what do we have in store now? We're, we're down to the last like four or five minutes here in this, in this sure. interview. So what's the, what's the future hold for fans of Brandon Mall? Yeah, so you know, if, if you're someone who hasn't tried my books, I'll tell you this first. You know, a great gateway to my stuff is Fablehaven. If you're a little, if you're a little older, a little nerdier, you, you want a, more, like, a little more sophisticated adventure, that's my Beyonders series. Okay, when I get a little bit older, when I grow up, I'll, I'll check out the Beyonders series. You got, you got to trust me on Beyonders. <laughs> Beyonders is like, is like a real trust fall because it's, it's so weird at the start. You'd be like, is he going somewhere with this? But I promise the payoffs are killer. Okay. It's just killer payoffs. So if, if, if you're, if you're kind of nerdy for fantasy, almost all, like, almost all my readers, once they find Beyonders and really try it, they go, yeah, that might be your best thing. Like, oh, good. It's, it's got, a, it's got really, really mighty finales. Um, but yeah, but but if you're looking for kids, maybe Candy Shop War one, Fablehaven one, or if you're kind of a light fantasy reader, Fablehaven one. Yeah, you know, get, get you into. We'll let you see if you like me or not, kind of right. The thing I'm working on right now is called the Forbidden Mountain, and that's more on my Beyonder side. It's going to be a little more. It's on the advanced side of my middle grade category, and so we'll be in it. We'll be in another world. It'll be a three book three book series. Um, it'll be my first time I've written fantasy where we're in the fantasy world the whole time every other fantasy i've written we're like finding the fantasy in our real world or we're going through a portal you know like narnia style but but i'm finally writing one that's we're we're in the fantasy world the whole time that'll be called the forbidden mountain should be coming out like next year i'm almost done with book one and i think it's cool i'm really excited about it well that's good then all right and then um obviously you're in bookstores because we just had uh the Printed Garden booksellers just featured you here. So if you're trying to find me, yeah, you, you know, my, my big series you can find in most of the most of the bookstores. Big series are Five Kingdoms, Fable Haven, Beyonders, stuff like that. Um, 
if you're having trouble finding me, you can always check on Amazon. You know, like yeah. they, they've got everything always pretty much. But my name is Brandon Mole. You can M-U-L-L, look at, yeah. M-U-L-L, brandonmole.com, or ch- track me down on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and you get little tidbits from me on there too. Or if you're interested in learning more about me, those are places to look. That'd be great. And then just one last thing in our last like two or three minutes here, just um, if you could, maybe, you've been giving lots of advice, great advice and tips, but sure. one particular good piece of advice or tip for a writer that's looking, moving up to the next level as in their, in their career as a writer, what would you say is, these not that be a writing tip. It could be just anything, but what would you say is yeah. something that's helped you the most? I mean, I'll, I'll give you two things. The first thing is um, when you read a good scene, you go into kind of a reader's trance and just experience the scene as you should because mm-hmm. that, that means the writer's done their job well and, and you're, you're just living that scene kind of, right. right? That's when you look at the clock and it's 2 a.m. You're like, what's <laughs> what 2 a.m.? Yeah, what happened? Because you were caught up in it and it, yeah. it really did its job, right? right? You were living it. When you're in that reader's trance and you're living the story, you are not paying attention to how it was done. Nor should you. Enjoy it because right. it's, it's, so, it's, a, it's a delight and it's why we read to get into that reader's trance and really live a story. But when you have some scenes you really love that do that for you, when you notice a scene really had you, go back and pay attention. Word by word, how'd they do it? They cast a spell. And the recipe is right there. It's just the words they chose, right? Right. How much dialogue, how much description. Just pay attention to how they did it. If just one pass, paying attention to how they did it when, you, when you've read a scene you really loved, if you're, if you're passionate about writing. Right. Look at how they did it and then and keep writing your own scenes. And as you do that, for a bunch of different writers, paying attention to how they built their scenes will gradually up your voice as a writer as you do your own writing. That, that, that's a really simple but important thing to do. That's awesome. Well, Brendan, this has been great having this opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, thanks. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Rise of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Rise of the Future series are available anywhere in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon, We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to have it be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Brandon. It was my pleasure. Thank you.